0: I found a nest in a in an underground parking lot, but not just, it was three stories down and they accessed it via like a grate on the surface. It just dropped down through that. Um, and then they were nesting on top of a fuse box in that lowest level of the parking lot. You are listening to I'm I'm my 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 God. God.
1: All right, hello. Welcome to the Urban Wildlife Podcast, part of the Wildlife Observer Network. I am one of your hosts, Tony Crosdale. Billy Brown uh, actually was on earlier, but he ha- he's feeling ill, so I'm going to be flying solo. I'm with our guest Samuel Bressler, who is going to talk to us today about urban junkos. Uh, not jenkos, not the giant, oversized jeans from the '90s, but urban junkos. So, Samuel, I'll. Why don't you um, tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, and uh, what we're going to be talking about today.
0: Sure, thanks. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a biologist um, from Southern California, um, from the L.A. area. Um, uh, I've been interested in... in I've been a birder for a really long time, since I was basically in elementary school. Um, I... For the last for the last few years, I just completed a a master's degree, actually um, studying dark eyed juncos in in the L.A. area. Um, And from there, I became super interested in um, urban ecology, the urban ecology of birds in general, of juncos in particular, but also of, of, you know, broader urban uh, ecological communities as well. Currently, I'm working as a consultant um, for a local for a local um, firm here. Um, but I, I'm still uh, always try and get out and check out the urban urban uh, bird spots. Oh my god! I'm sorry. I'm sorry about that. You there, you there? Yes.
1: Yeah. Yeah. We just uh, heard a uh, crash. I wasn't sure if you're uh, went away.
0: <laughs> sorry about that. Not just someone fell.
1: Cool. Yeah. So Junkos, you know, we have, you know, it's interesting because they're very much an urban bird where I am in the winter, but um, in the summer we have to go up to like bogs in the Poconos or the boreal forest to see them. But, you know, the subspecies on the West coast, um, you know, breeding a lot more. I, I, you know, it was interesting when you brought up the subject because I you know, I hadn't really thought about juncos as an, as an urban breeding bird, but I, it makes sense that they would be out, out west. So let's, can you talk um, – you, you're talking about the west coast subspecies, I assume.
0: Yeah, so the juncos I work with, they're from their the subspecies Thurberi, which is – it's junco taxonomy is not fun to get into. But basically there's different races of juncos, and the one we have out west is called the Oregon junco, Um and they're the ones. If you're out west, you'll be familiar with them. They have the, you know, they have brown backs um, and sort of warmish brown sides and a black or gray head, depending on the depending on the sex. Um, and you know, it's funny if you taught if you told uh, an old timer birder from the '80s or something that junkas were going to be synonymous with um, urban bird communities, they would not have believed you. They're pretty common. Around here, like in parks, at feeders, etc., um, during winter, they really like you know sort of those park-like uh, areas, um, schools, colleges, some of the larger parks that have some some understory in them. But even up till um, even up till the 80s, they were not known to breed. They're around here, you know, since this is out west, they're mostly breeding in our local mountains where there's a good amount of mixed pine oak type forest Um, but while this has happened in different places but starting in the 1980s in San Diego and starting in the 2000s in Los Angeles there has been a really explosive incursion of juncos into different urban areas Um, so for instance here in LA, in the LA basin there were basically no records of, of juncos reading in in the city itself the only records were really from places like um the Santa Monica Mountains there were a few pairs in the San Gabriel Mountains there was a good population but those are really really heavily forested not developed areas but yeah starting around the mid 2000s we think um they started showing up first sort of at the outskirts of the cities but even um but now they're they've basically permeated throughout much of the basin. Anywhere where there's potential for tree cover, um, you have a good chance of finding juncos. They they can be found on the west side. They can be found in the Pasadena area. They can be found in even even as far south as the Palos Verde Peninsula, right? Um, so, and this has just taken place within the last fifteen years. They've gone from basically not breeding at all in in um, southern, in. L.A. to being one of our most abundant breeders. Probably on on the UCLA campus where I did my work, they're either the top breeder or maybe the second behind, like Anna's or Alan's hummingbird or something. Um, our population, we estimated our population on about 400 acres uh, of of campus had probably around 120 at least breeding pairs of dark-eyed juncos. Wow, yeah.
1: That's remarkable. That's – I love these changes. You know, like, um, I mean, who knows? There might be, you know, some sort of anthropogenic influence that is causing it that's not so cool. Um, but, you know, in Philadelphia area and much farther north, you know, we have Mockingbirds, Red Belly Woodpeckers, Carolina Wren, um, and, um, you know, uh, Cardinals um, that were not here. Black Vulture, they were not – they were not here a hundred years ago, you know, maybe even like 60, 70 years ago, or, you know, 50 Some of you, birds that we think of like ubiquitous in our area. Now, um, Fiery, um is a recent colonizer of the uh, coastal plain of Piedmont, this far North. So it's really interesting how, you know, um, bird distribution can change within a life uh, life cycle. What are you describing this? That's an interesting
0: question. Technically speaking, we're not sure yet, but I, I think there's a, there, we have a couple of good guesses. Um, and my own, per, my own uh, hypothesis is that it's largely driven by changing land use, right? Um, so, you know, before, before humans, um, before, you know, pre-European uh, colonization of um, the LA basin and of much of Southern California, uh, this area would mostly be things like um, coastal sage, scrub, chaparral, you know, sort of low, low growing, um, thick, uh, thick shrubby habitat, um, which is not really where juncos like to be. They like those open areas with trees. Um, so you wouldn't expect, you know, pre-European colonization, it's not, wouldn't really be great habitat for them. And then, of course, with European colonization comes agriculture, which is also not great for them um, you, you don't really associate Juncos certainly not breeding juncos, really, with agriculture um, but with the growth of city with the growth of Los Angeles and its suburbs um, there's been a, a change in the land use specifically the the sort of plants that are used um, and how they're used so if you think about what if you think about what a junco uh, likes, what a junco likes uh, in its native forested habitat. It likes having pine trees. Uh, it, t- it tends to be uh, associated with pines and other coniferous forests, uh, certainly out here at least. Um, it likes having um, open areas to forage um, and likes having um, sort of some, some thick uh, low ground cover vegetation in which to, to place its nests on the ground. And so think about, if you think about what our parks are like, certainly in Los Angeles and much of the country, you know you've got large, high densities of planted pines, you've got extensive lawns, and you've got sort of these ornamental bushes and and hedges and such. And so my thinking, my, my opinion is that we've we've accidentally recreated the conditions that Juncos like. and they they you know they they love those areas in winter. And maybe it's it was just a matter of time until they started really realizing they could breed here. There's other hypotheses as well that maybe the the city has, um, has you know the the microclimate has changed from from as a result of urban um, as a result of urbanization, and that has allowed them to uh, to persist better. Um, but I I really think that it's you know I really I really think that the junk of success is tied to to our use of planted pines and lawns, um, both in both in parks, in gardens, uh, both public and private gardens, and in places like schools and universities.
1: That's really that's neat. Um, how that uh the um. Ornamental plantings inadvertently. Well, it kind of reminds me of chipping sparrows, because uh, chipping sparrows are like a Savannah species, um, and out here they uh, they love uh, manicured parks. Like they're really thick in uh, in like you know like you'll see them in any kind of park that has like grass with with shade trees is is full of chipping sparrows. So. And it's kind of, you know, the uh, ornamental landscape mimicking their their preferred
0: um, conditions, so. Out of, out of curiosity, do, do they breed in, in those sorts of parks as well or do they mostly just winter winter there? Breed, too, yeah. They breed? Wow. Yeah, yeah. see, we have chipping spares out here as well. And they they've done some, you know, there has been some colonization of similar areas. By chipping sparrows. There's a population probably about 10 to 20 chipping sparrows at a park, you know, at a hundred acre park near my house, actually, that I was just visiting yesterday and I heard them singing. But they haven't, you know, they haven't really, you know, they, they've shown up in a few parks and they seem to be persisting, but they're not, they, at least in one, one of the things I've been really curious about is why is it that the chipping sparrows uh, are not exploding Um, in population in a way that junkos here are whereas whereas the junkos have basically taken over much of la the chipping spares are still sort of a few pairs here a few pairs there um, and very very um, sporadic so that's that's actually i would say a question that uh, i would be very interested in looking into in the future yeah i mean
1: um that's like you know that's such an interesting mean that, that comes up a lot too with like um why are red-shouldered hawks and barred owls like the like super thick in the urban suburban ecosystems in the southeast but not you know like they're thinner up here um even though like there's very similar habitat you know um like red tails are the urban beautio in philadelphia area and but if you go, you know, not very far south, red shoulders, and I know that, like, you know, we actually had a podcast episode with Rob Biergard about urban barred owls in North Carolina. You know, and we're not very far north of North Carolina in the grand scheme of things, and very similar habitat, and they're not, you know, they they seem like they haven't um, colonized the, uh, you know, the uh, the suburbs because, like, uh, like they like. They, like even though it's very similar habitat down in the southeast, uh, although we are starting to see more red shoulders in this um, in the last couple of years, so it'll be interesting to see if 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 there's more urban red shoulders. Yeah, but Yeah. And
0: meanwhile, so. and meanwhile, out here, out, out west, you know, and in LA, the you know, uh, one of my colleagues at UCLA was working on urban raptors, actually doing a, a nesting uh, a nest study as well on urban raptors. And the, uh, the absolute dominant raptor out here is the Cooper's Hawk. And we've got, you know, we've got red tails as well and red shoulders, but the Cooper's Hawks just absolutely outnumber them by maybe not quite an order of magnitude, but nothing close to that. Um, so, yeah. Now,
1: sorry. When, when you say, when you said the Cooper's Hawks are outnumbering them, um, how is that being quantified? What I mean by that is, is that like, uh, from eBird, or is that from like actual formal surveys? The reason why I ask is, I've
0: actual often for- actual <laughs> formal, actual formal surveys. And have you um, compared that with what's on eBird? I, I, it's not. I'm. I don't want to answer. My study, and uh, so I don't want to spoil too much of his research. But uh, I'd have to talk to him more uh, about how he did it. But I just know that they did a really exhaustive study of, of of urban raptors and 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 their use of, their use of basically different nest substrates and nest, nesting habitats.
1: That, yes, I'd love to see that study because the reason why I asked is in Philadelphia. If you were to ask somebody what the most common, um, you know, what's the most common uh, urban raptor, it would definitely be red-tailed hawk. Um, some people might say peregrine just because, like they're they don't they're not they don't bird that much and they're they're just famous you know for city but there's only a few bergen pairs in the city and there's so many red-tailed i mean they're everywhere in the city here but you know for me who's you know experienced birder like i see cooper socks all the time you know and, and they're just they just dart across the street you know they uh, I mean, sometimes I see them soaring, but like you know, I'll see them just, you know, chase a pigeon here or there, you know. Often again, it's just like shooting across the street, or whatever. And I, I just, I've often said as I wouldn't be surprised if there's just as many Cooper socks in Philadelphia. It's just because they're not sitting on a light pole or soaring. We don't, they don't, they're not detected as as frequently. But if you actually like looked at. You know, did formal surveys, and you know I wouldn't be surprised if they're just as numerous, if not more. So that's definitely, yeah. We heard about the, um, I'm trying to actually do an episode about this. Have so you heard about the short tailed hawks, the urban short tailed hawks of Florida?
0: I do not know about that. I, so, that, sounds, that sounds fascinating.
1: Yes. Yeah. Because uh, apparently, um, because of the Eurasian collar dove colonization, and then also like the, the population of morning doves in, in cities, uh, and, in they're unusual for beauty where they specialize in birds. So they've, they, they've kind of moved to be like a, almost an urban bird in, in Florida. That's, that's wild. Yeah. We know a guy works at Disney world and they're apparently in Orlando in nesting in Disney world. So,
0: yeah.
1: And then you got the snail kite which is expanding its range because of the invasive apple snails yeah so that's pretty cool so um so yeah what more can you tell me about these juncos
0: so uh so there's they're really fascinating but i i really focused on one specific aspect of their of their sort of their life history and that was their nesting so so if you're familiar with juncos um, they tend to nest, they tend to be, if you look in the literature, they you generally find that they're ground nesters. Um, you know, they tend to under things like ground, low ground covers, you know, where they can easily conceal their nest. Um, occasionally low in shrubs, but not really, not really high up the way you would expect, maybe uh, like flycatchers or something to do, or warblers. Um, the thing about the urban juncos something that was first established by actually my advisor um, in at, for her on her work in the san diego population in the 90s and 2000s and further confirmed by what we found was um, that these juncos in urban areas they're not nesting some many of them are nesting the same way they're going under things like you know english ivy or um you know, uh, liriope, sort of bunchgrass type um, plants. Lantana is another one they like to use. So they'll, they'll nest oftentimes in those sort of non-native uh, ground covers. But we also see them using, we see them doing two new things. We see them nesting above the ground at a very high rate. And we also find them nesting in really, really weird places, both on the ground and above the ground. So, again, this is a species that typically, you know, no more than 5% of, um, of nests are going above the ground. My uh in her work in on the San Diego population, found a above ground nesting rate of about 13%. And my work in Los Angeles, looking at about 130 nests found an above-ground nesting rate. So they're nesting above the ground 38% of the time. So 38% of the nests we found were above the ground. Which, again, is incredible for a species that almost always in its natural habitat nests on the ground. And sometimes they're using trees, but they tend to stay away from trees. Um, So, for instance, we found them nesting in stairwells. Like house sparrows, oftentimes, oh, wow. like in, yeah, we found them nesting in stairwells. We found them nesting in underground park. I found a nest my first year doing this. I found a nest in a in an underground parking lot, but not. It was three stories down, and they accessed it via like a grate on the surface. It just dropped down through that, um, and then they were nesting on top of a fuse box in that lowest level of the parking lot. Um, that nest failed, unfortunately, but. We've That was still a, an absolutely insane nest to find for this species. Um, we found them nesting in um, uh, light poles. Uh, well, you know, those sort of ornamental lights that are on the sides of buildings, of old buildings. We found them using those as well. Um, we found them nesting in... Um, we found them nesting in... Repeatedly nesting under literally a discarded cardboard box in like this weird trench next to a building Um, yeah Uh, we've you know that same pair also nested sort of in this weird like trench that was underneath uh, you know underneath the same building as well like underneath a grate and that pair twice nested under that cardboard box and twice nested under the uh, in that trench that wet trench that gutter type thing three of their four nests were successful so obviously they were doing something right um, they use we found them using old black phoebe nests, we found them using um, uh, you know, window blinds, um, uh, like external window blinds sort of tucked in the corner of a window. So, basically, think about what house sparrows do, and that's what these junkers are doing. It's absolutely nuts.
1: And why, um, now have you looked at like, um, um So they're nesting in areas that they normally would have nested in, but were deforested. Um, and then the other right? It's not like they've changed their range; it's more like they're reclaiming area. Like,
0: no, like in forests they don't, you know, enforce you enforce. There, there are no buildings to nest on. For instance, there, and then, and they. What
1: we're what, what we getting at is, is: are they nesting at like um, lower elevations than they would have normally have nested in? Are they are they are oh. they claiming new range, or is this formally within their range that's now urban?
0: I'm pretty. We're pretty sure that this is new range um, because before before human before ur, uh, urbanization, this area would have been mostly agriculture, and before that, things like Things like chaparral and coastal sage scrub that they wouldn't have used um, for nesting. So this is this is a a, a new range expansion.
1: Well, what makes you wonder about the other subspecies, like other, you know, the um, slate-colored, for instance? Are they nesting in like Portland, Maine, or Anchorage, or or um, you know? Um, have people been looking at that at all are they nesting in like urban areas and in um you know the other subspecies range
0: that's a great question i think there's one one population that is in the process of being established i think in um ohio somewhere in ohio but i i couldn't tell you exactly where i think it's one of the northeastern cities of ohio but um it's certain, to my knowledge, I don't know of any urban junka populations back east the way that we have here in in San Diego or Los Angeles um, or some of our other cities. But you know that's not that's not saying that it can't happen. You know because again, two in uh, twenty years ago, you would have said the same thing about Los Angeles. So maybe you know it's just as easy. It could be that within the next ten years, the junko you know slate coloreds. Will maybe colonize Philly or colonize New York or um, some of the other cities that have good, uh, have areas with um, suitable habitat, good mixed pine type parkland.
1: Yeah, and but why now? That's, I mean, you know, Los Angeles has been here a while.
0: That's, it's a, a very tough question to answer and I, I don't know that I have any. I have two possible hypotheses that i th- i think are val- equally valid one is it's just a, you know a stochastic thing they the juncos you know a few you know the birds sing before they head back north so maybe they were singing in appropriate habitat and then one year in like 2005 some females some female juncos just decided to you know that this was appropriate habitat and this and they would um um that they would decide to start nesting, and then once that started happening, it set off a chain reaction. So maybe whenever, maybe it's a stochastic thing that whenever a uh, 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 critical number of females decide to start nesting, that after that, it just takes off from there. That's one possibility. I think if you're looking for a, me- a more mechanistic possibility, I think it would be very fair to look at um, tree age, you know, because when you, when you uh replace at least out here you know um trees take a few decades at least to um mature you know our pines take you know probably 20 something years or so um to mature before they get to be like they're they actually take on like an urban forest character right yeah. because junkos are probably not going to be super interested in you know like 10 foot tall saplings um so it it might just take time for the urban forest to sort of reach a critical point where it provides appropriate junco habitat. So maybe, you know, the the uh, more earlier urbanized areas um, of San Diego and Los Angeles, um, maybe those are calling because those trees had more time. You know, those planted street trees and planted park trees had more time, whereas places out in, like, Orange County where there aren't really as many juncos, um, it's still it's still not as, you know, densely forested as um, as it is sort of uh, deeper in the city, and the trees are are not really... It's not as densely forested, and the trees tend to be a bit younger as well. But they're nesting in um,
1: man-made structures, so... yeah what is it kind of like sinking source where like they they have to reach a critical mass like they first colonize the you know the the urban forest and then they um that they, they, then the you know the young will, will look for nests you know because in other habitats because they're you know adjacent to the far urban forest because they you know they they you know the 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 suitable nest sites are already in territories or something like that. Is that where you, you know, cause if the nesting in urban, if the nesting in man-made structures, why do they have to wait for the trees to get mature unless they, you know, that was the first thing they colonized.
0: Um, that again, that's a good question. And as of now, you know, until we get more research done, a lot of this is just totally, you know, totally speculative, but it could be that maybe the trees are providing a signal, that this is appropriate nesting habitat yeah and then yeah. that's you know that's what the birds recognize in order to in order to actually begin nesting and then once they are nesting you know a- after uh nesting uh uh has begun and a population has been established then you can see processes of adaptation in certain cases evolution more likely something like behavioral plasticity that's what allows them to behaviorally diverge from their original you know from the source population so maybe it could just be that you know the trees are a signal and then once 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 that population is established then they start diverging
1: and do you think they would have um they think they would they have expanded um would they have found these habitats in their winter range and then just stayed?
0: Probably, yes, because they're pretty common throughout, um, you know, these sort of, you know, they're pretty common throughout Los Angeles and these sort of habitats in winter and have been for decades. Um, it's just what changed was instead of instead of migrating north for, for the for the summer or migrating up in elevation, uh, they they just decided to to um, become sedentary, so definitely, I would say probably the same birds that were wintering here are the ones that that started uh, the sort of the colonization attempt. Yeah, the colonization.
1: Event. Hey podcast listeners. We hope you like this discussion of how urban birds are adapting to urban areas and colonizing based on the stuff that we plant. There's a lot of literature out there and a lot of fun discussion about all sorts of birds that are adapting to urban areas in lots of funky ways. Um, we will be, of course, talking about all that kind of stuff in future episodes of the podcast. And if you've got any thoughts on this or any topics you'd like to, for us to cover, please send us an email at urbanwildlifecast@gmail.com. at gmail.com, tweet at us at herbwildlifecasts, Find us on facebook that's what samuel bressler did he got in touch with us with this idea and we loved it and we had him on the podcast you can too so please get in touch with us tell us about your research um, or interesting local urban wildlife topics wherever you are thanks